This, the reading today is from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kathy. I had one of those moments just about 30 seconds ago. I looked down. I did not see my sermon notes underneath my seat. That feels really good. <laughs> there they were, though. I found them. I'm so glad. It reminded me of the time I was, uh, well, one of my first couple Sundays here, actually, I left a whole page out of my notes. In the middle of the sermon, I went, Lee, are they back there with you? Because <laughs> he gets a manuscript copy of my sermon, and he didn't have it either, so that was a bit disjointed that morning, but grateful that wasn't my candidating Sunday. <laughs> well, we get to revisit um, sanctification today, uh, sanctification 2.0, we're calling it. Summer's the time for sequels, isn't it? Um, so we are doing our sequel on the topic of sanctification. I know from multiple conversations, actually, this uh, past a couple of weeks, that our first message on sanctification, where we discussed the difference between legalism and the gospel, that there were some emotional responses to that message. I don't take credit for that at all. God does a work when we preach His Word, and He was doing a work in our hearts that morning. Whether it was the story of, remember my book being ripped up uh, in sixth grade in front of my class, or the Dirty Rose story we talked about. If you didn't hear that sermon, go back a couple weeks and listen to it. Each of us were challenged that morning to examine, to look at our own hearts, our motivations for growing in obedience, and some of you were impacted in deeply emotional places. I know that. So I thought, we need to take another Sunday and talk about sanctification. 
one more Sunday to talk about this idea and follow up on this topic with an ongoing encouragement and hope this morning as we grow in gospel-fueled obedience. Not legalism, but from the heart joy and gratitude and living for the Lord. Because remember, that's what sanctification is. It's the day-to-day growth from the inside out into more obedience, to be, be like Jesus, to look like Jesus, to become like Jesus in our earthly daily life. That's where we're going today. A question we like to ask here at Bethany Church, and we do from time to time, what is our salvation for? We've asked this multiple times here. What are we saved for? Have you thought about that question in your life? Is it really just a fire assurance, get out of hell card? Or is it more? It's not less than that. But if that's the only depth you have to your view of being a follower of Jesus, let me tell you, it falls far short of what God has in store for you. What are you saved for? Not just from, but for. Why did God choose to redeem you, to save you? Well, did you know that salvation technically now has a threefold process? A threefold process of deliverance to it, even. We did a chart for the beginning of this series. I thought we'll do one for the end. It, it does. It's got a threefold process. And on the left side, we've kind of got the threefold kind of theological, you might call them, terms of what salvation is. And on the right, you've got a little sentence that kind of gives us the kind of the application of it, the practical, what does that actually mean? And at the top of that list is this idea of justification. That is the idea we've been talking about all the first five, really six weeks of this series, that we are made right with God, made righteous in His eyes, justified. That is our initial salvation where we've been saved from the penalty of sin. That's born again, regeneration, repentance and faith and putting those in Christ and being justified. But that's not just the end. That's just the beginning. Of course, you're saved for once and for all in that justification. That doesn't become undone. You don't lose that. You can't lose that, actually. It's a topic for another time. But salvation goes on progressively as we get into sanctification, which practically just means you're being saved from the power of sin. That's where we're camping today. But it doesn't end there even. As we'll see in our message in this passage, you will progressively grow until the day you are, what's the last one? Glorified, glorification, which is when we will be saved entirely from the presence of sin. Inside out, the world itself and the new heaven and earth. So threefold process, justification, sanctification, glorification. So why is this important then this morning? As you look at that chart, as some of you have jotted it down, because too many Christians, I think, in our personal lives and, and sometimes even churches in their corporate lives get stagnated and stuck in justification. That first, first uh, line there. On a personal level, sometimes we flounder just around, kind of around just wondering, well, now what? I'm saved. I guess I just kind of bide my time and wait till either Jesus comes or I go home to him. And, but is that really what we were saved for? Just abide time and wait. Or maybe it's, you haven't really thought about that and you don't actually really examine your life too often or ask others how you're growing in holiness, sanctification, 
When was the last time you asked someone this question? Have you seen me growing? A spouse, a friend, a sibling? Have you seen me changing? Where have I grown? Encourage me with that. Or maybe the flip side of that, where am I stagnant? Where, what am I missing? What are my blind spots? Because we know our hearts are deceptive, aren't they? Where's my blind spot? Help me see that. Where am I stagnant? Because we look at the passage today, the language of dead to sin, new creature, new identity, new heart, new spirit in you, does that let us stay stagnant? No. No. It doesn't. And if that's your mentality, the question to ask is, what does that really say about your justification? If you don't ferociously pursue the glorification and sanctification God's calling you to. That's personally, but as churches too, this matters, as we are called to take seriously the life and the body together, to spur one another on towards good works and to, to, to uh, confront and talk gently and lovingly about our sin even in the church. If we don't address sin in the body and in our personal lives and our corporate life, we, we don't actually do this. We get stagnant in justification, personally and corporately. Maybe it means we don't talk about it when someone hurts us, when we should actually, when we hurt someone. You know, most of the problems in the church, in most churches, come from Christians' inability to live realistically on the daily battlefield of sanctification. Most of, not all, but most of the problems in the church come from that, our inability to just talk about the hard stuff, to, like I said, talk when someone hurts us and let them know, or, or vice versa, we, when we've wronged someone, to go to them. If we just start on that, 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 that battlefield of sanctification and live there, a lot of most churches' problems would be dealt with. Maybe it's our inability to hear loving critique from those who know us best, or our inability to be honest when we feel sinned against. I know that's hard. So many times I just want to be kind of seen as, as nice, and so what ends up happening is I end up maybe silently stewing on something, and letting anger grow, but then letting it leak out here and there, or sometimes unable to keep it in, and we sometimes then leave a wake of devastation in our path. And that shouldn't be the status quo of any church as we look today at this passage and this progressive saving that God is doing so this week, Sanctification 2.0, we're going to go a little deeper to consider this. How our union with Christ, how our identity in Jesus, in His death and resurrection are so integral to our change and to our growth. We're going to see that sanctification is certain as well. There's a lot of hope today, a lot of encouragement today. That we'll actually, we will live as one who has died to sin and is resurrected with Christ so we're going to consider two integral truths. I'll give them to you right up front. One is our death to sin, and one is the dethroning of sin in our hearts. So that's where we're going today. We're going to look at our death to sin and the dethroning of sin in our hearts. So let's do that by looking at our first point, one, uh, one of two. Christians are people who have died to sin. We've died to sin. In Romans 6, Paul is transitioning in this chapter. After taking the first 
five chapters to lay out our justification. That first line on the chart, our being uh, saved from the penalty of sin. He takes the first five chapters to lay that out, making the case that you and I, we were born spiritually dead. Born even as slaves to sin is how he describes us. But Jesus Christ makes us alive and gives us justification by faith through grace grace alone. Look at the end of chapter 5 as we transition to 6. He says in Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification. There's that word. And life for men and women. So then now as we transition and we get to this chapter 6, Paul's done that for five chapters unpacked what it means to be justified, saved, made right. And so he gets to chapter 6 and he asks the rhetorical question, essentially, so then what is our salvation for? What are we saved for? If we're saved by grace alone, couldn't someone, and here's the rhetorical idea and line of thought at the beginning of 6, couldn't someone make the argument that, well, as we sin then, as actually sin increases, and doesn't grace increase as well? Isn't someone going to make the argument, Paul, if you talk about grace this much, that that's just a license to sin, isn't it? And Paul says, no, 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 by no means, verse 2 says. He says, don't you know? We are actually dead to sin and alive to Christ. It's our first sub-point there. Consider this. You are a new creature in Christ under this overall topic of being dead to sin. You're a new creature in Christ, he basically says. Now, you and I, we probably wouldn't go so far as to ask that rhetorical question. Uh, You know, well, if it's all grace, then, I mean, we sin more, we get more grace, right? So should we sin so grace will abound? We probably wouldn't go that far. But maybe our sin is staying quiet about our sin, not addressing our sin. You know, we just don't talk about those sort of things. It's too hard. And when we do that, you know what happens? We miss the opportunity for Jesus to enter in with his sweet balm of grace and the gospel to actually do the work it was meant to do. Those are the moments when the gospel shines. But if we don't talk about those moments... We never give Jesus the moment to shine in those moments or the gospel to do its work that it was meant to do. And so Paul is saying, whether you blatantly flaunt sin so grace will abound or more subtly, which is probably more church's temptation, more subtly ignore sin and live in it, a status quo. It says in verse 1, Paul says, wait, 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 remember, you are a new creature in Christ. You're new. His response is really pretty simple. He just says, you're a new creature. You're dead to sin. But then he goes on in this rich language to describe this union we have. Some call it the mystical union. How are we really vine and branches? What does that really mean? But he talks about this union we have with Christ that baptism represents. Look at the language of verses 1 through 11. Stare down at your text there. He says, baptized into Christ. There's union. 
into his death, he says, united with him in his death, united in and with him in resurrection. Our old self was crucified with him, all that language, so that we won't be slaves to sin, dead to sin, with in, into Christ, all that unifying language. Paul is saying, through your born-again justification and this powerful new work in your heart by the Spirit, you are united to Him. He says, don't you see it? You're, you're wed to Him. You're, you're fleshed to Him. You're united to Him. His position is your position. What He is, you are too or at least it's credited to you, and you're going to become that. When he died, Paul says, it's as if you died with him. When he raised, Paul says, it's as if you raised with him, and that's what baptism points us to. We are entirely new creatures and people with new potential and new power, Paul is saying, because you're in him, he says, a new power to fight sin, to battle against it. But I know that you and I, and myself included, how we live most of our days, it's a little bit more like a spiritual Jekyll and Hyde. You know that story? That Jekyll and Hyde is, I think, a short novella, a short kind of novel. It talks about Jekyll and Hyde. We like to, we don't like to, but we act like we go between, we vacillate between our old self and our new self. You probably know a bit of the story. There was a a scientist, Jekyll, who had discovered a serum that would turn him from the respectable Jekyll, that was the good guy, Jekyll, and that's this serum would turn him into the evil Hyde who would then go and indulge in all his evil vices, murderous even vices in the story. So he could hide uh, in the day as the respectable Jekyll, and then at, at night he could unleash his evil on the, the city. But he begins to involuntarily turn into Hyde when he doesn't even want to. And then he needs greater and greater amounts of doses of the serum to turn him back into the respectable Jekyll. He vacillates back and forth and back and forth. The connection is for us that too many of us have too low of a view of our new creatureliness, our new self. It it wasn't just an addition to our old self, and now sometimes I act like my old self, and sometimes I act like my new, like I'm a spiritual Jekyll and Hyde vacillating between the two, and they're both there, the old and the new. In the day I live my new self, but watch out at night, I revert to my old self. No, Paul says, The old self is dead, he says. It's dead. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. There's this little anecdote about uh, Augustine, the 5th century pastor, who understood the new sanctification or the new birth and and then sanctification so well. Before his regeneration, he had a mistress who after his conversion, the story goes, he uh, met her out on the street and he was walking and she saw him and she called out to him, Augustine, Augustine, this mistress. And he continued walking, kind of ignoring 
her calls. And so she ran up to him and grabbed him, actually, and said, Augustine, what's the matter? It's I. To which he responded, the matter, dear lady, is that it's not I. Pretty quick, huh? (laughs) To have that answer. I mean, of course it was Augustine in one sense. It was him. She recognized him. It was him standing there. But in another sense, it was not him. His sin was now incongruous with his new creatureliness, his new identity in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean it was impossible for him to sin. Of course, he could have said in that moment, hey, one more time for old sake, right? He could have. But it was unthinkable in that moment to him. It was unthinkable. He was a new creature. That's what Paul's getting at here. You are dead to sin, alive to Christ. It's a new power, new potential, new opportunity to actually now say a real no to sin by the power of the Spirit. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Maybe Augustine had that verse right in his head in that moment. Paul's saying, you're a member of the body of Christ. So when you take your body and sin with it, you drag Christ there. You're unified. You're in. You're with. Flesh to Him, he says. So here's what he's saying. Yes, you and I still battle sin. And we will to the day we die. And sometimes the longer we're a Christian, the more we actually realize the depth, don't we, of our sin, if we're talking about heart level now. And this is a progressive battle against sin, he's saying. But by faith, we need to believe and trust that we are new. You are new in Christ. That We are dead to sin. You have a new possibility, new potential, a new power at work within us to progressively grow and change us and sanctify us. You're not the person you used to be, in other words. So Paul's saying, don't keep living like that old person. It's incongruous is the word, incongruous. The matter, dear lady, is that it is not I. You know, some of this sanctification talk it might discourage you a little bit as you talk about, on such, as Paul's talking in such grand and lofty terms of in and with Christ and this new potential and power we have. As you think, well, why am I not changing faster then? And why some days do I seem to take two steps forward and 27 back? <laughs> do you ever feel that way? Oh, yeah. To that, we've got to look at our second sub-point here. Consider this. Consider the certainty of your sanctification. Consider the certainty of it for encouragement today. Look at verse 5 with me and then 14. Verse 5 says, For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly, there's that word, certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And look down to the last verse there, 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. Paul's wanting us to know here something similar to what he says in Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will be what? 
faithful to complete it. Certain, faithful to complete it. Your sanctification, Paul says in this passage, your ongoing growth is as guaranteed as the resurrection is proof for that. It's guaranteed to happen. He's saying if you've trusted in his death and become united to him, You'll also be united to his resurrection as you were his death, which is the completion of our sanctification when we're resurrected in glorified bodies. It's so certain, Paul says. He's saying you can be certain of it, even on those days when you feel like, what am I doing? Why am I changing so slowly? Why am I taking these steps backwards in life? He's saying you can be encouraged He's also saying this, you're not working alone in this. You are not alone in your sanctification project. It's a collaboration. It's a work together. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship. He's working on you. Created in Christ Jesus, there's the new creature, made for what? Good works. Look at this, though, which God prepared even beforehand that we should walk in them. It's, it's not, you're not on your own in this one. God's not going to leave you alone. He had to save you, which he did all by himself, but in your sanctification, he's partnering, working with you. You're not alone. Here's what that means, too, for some encouragement. The depth at which you grow, the rate at which you grow is also determined by the Holy Spirit. Now, you hear that and you go, well, then what's my part? <laughs> if, 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 if God's doing this work in me and he's working through me and, and even preparing these works that I'll walk in, that doesn't excuse us to be slack. It doesn't. And the, the effort we give in gracious gospel overflow has a direct impact on our growth. It doesn't excuse us. But it encourages us to know that God's greater purpose to make you holy like Jesus is going to come to fruition. It's going to happen for you. It's going to. Sometimes at different paces, sometimes quicker, sometimes slower, sometimes steps, sometimes back. It's kind of like parenting. And the Lord uses even discipline in our life to sanctify us. Like parenting, no one disciplines their child because it's pleasant. There are those moments when we sin and they're tempted to find pleasure in that. But no, we don't do that because it's pleasurable. A parent doesn't do that. They do it in love. Why? Because there's a greater purpose. You don't want your child to grow up to be a jerk, get arrested, and get put in jail, right? That's really, I mean, if you look at it, the practical side of it, we do it because we love them as parents, right? And so many of the trials we face are this very thing. God in love is pulling away from us our self-confidence and the grand delusion that we have about ourselves. But sometimes it's in the midst of that suffering that we don't stop in the process and just think, okay, Lord, reveal to me what you are trying to teach me. I've shared this with you before, but a year and a half ago now, two years ago, and I was going through a lot of my own health issues and voice issues and wondering what was going to happen to me and, um, you know, and struggling and trials and even anxiety during that time. 
It wasn't until I stopped and said, all right, Lord, instead of saying, like, take this away, my prayer changed and I said, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? I didn't say it with a lot of enthusiasm, <laughs> but I said that. And I will, I, I, I tell you guys that it wasn't like everything instantly, boom, but it was in that moment I began to transform, change see things differently than I did. And it began a healing restoration and I think growth, growth process for me. He is gracious. He will do that. So in the middle of that trial, don't just grin and bear it or put your head down to the grindstone and keep trudging on. Stop and go, Lord, what are you, what are you trying to teach me in the middle of this? Because he doesn't waste your suffering. Yeah, I mean, isn't that great? Everyone's going to suffer. Christian, non-Christian, uh, Mormon, atheist, Buddhist, uh, Muslim, we're all going to suffer, but you know that only the Christian has suffering that isn't wasted and that can actually be used to sanctify us? He'll be gracious. He'll show you. He will show you. But thank the Lord in His grace, He doesn't show us all at once where we need to change, right? Can you imagine? What do you think would happen if He showed you all at once, all your warts and where you need to change at once? You probably wouldn't get out of bed, would you? And it would be so devastating if he unveiled to us all at once the ways we need to change. But that's why he's so gracious, and that's why sanctification is progressive. It's ongoing. It's, it's lifelong. And many times that revealing and searching and probing work he does, you know where it takes place a lot? The Bible says in the mind. Of course, that connects to the heart. But the Bible specifically says in this area, the mind. So let's take a look at that in this third subpoint here. The place of the mind. Consider now, we're considering in these first three, consider the place of the mind in your sanctification. Your mind, your thoughts, what goes through your mind, the things you ponder, the things you daydream about, the things you obsess about, the things you love thinking about, your mind. What are those for you? Taking a look at this passage again, Paul's making the case that we must trust, and there's an element of the mind there, trust what Jesus says about our union to him. That close identity, the vine and the branch life we have with him. In verses 3 and 6 and 11, he says, you must know this in verse 3. We must know, verse 6, our old self was crucified. Verse 11, we must consider all words of the mind. Consider your dead to sin. Words of the mind there. What we're being told really is that we must so immerse ourselves in the good news of the gospel, our unity to Jesus Christ, that the idea of sinning becomes abhorrent to us. Incongruous was the word. It just doesn't match up with the new creature that we are. The matter, dear lady, is that it is not I incongruous. What sound is the worst to you? What sound just irritates you beyond all belief? Is it your alarm at 6 a.m.? Probably the phone alarm. Yeah, it might be at somebody's head. <laughs> A sound that is just incongruous with every fiber of your being. How many is it nails on a chalkboard? 
There's, uh, there's a few out there. I was going to try to find a sound effect and play it right now, but I was like, that's nasty. That would be too mean to do it, everybody. How about, for some of you, other people's mouth noises? I see some fingers pointing at others. I'm not going to tell who. How about a fork on a plate or on your teeth? Cat puking? Some people will literally flee from a room with nails on a chalkboard. Some people will flee from... Some of you are cringing right now getting ready to leave. I don't want to lose you. Stay, please. You want to hear the ending. What if our aversion to sin was that incongruous? Just, just to flee. As Joseph fled from Potiphar's house and wife, You have to know and consider, that's the words, and trust with our union with Christ and that we will be transformed by the renewal of our mind so deeply that it gets into your mind, into your heart, that sin becomes abhorrent to us, just incongruous with who I am, with who you are. Well, you might say, okay, well, how does that work? How does that work? I want that. Well, God uses a lot of means. He uses a lot of means and tools to sanctify us. But here Paul addresses, addressed listeners who said, if you teach them about grace too much, it's going to give them a license to sin. When in fact he's saying the exact opposite. He is saying the exact opposite. To give someone the security that you are saved by grace, not human will or effort, when you truly believe it, it frees them up to do what? Finally, give up the delusion that we're self-sufficient, we're truly good in and of ourselves, to give up the delusion that we can add anything to our salvation. And in fact, growth in grace and understanding of God saving us allows us to open ourselves up to the surgical knife of His law, of what He says is good of what he says is beautiful, of what he says is true, of what he says is virtuous. Grace allows us to be open to that because we know that whatever the law reveals to us will not make him turn his face from us. That's what it does. If we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, and if you believe that, you know what you can finally do? You can finally be honest with yourself. You can be honest with yourself and your thoughts and what's running through your heart and mind. Do you know how self, self-deceptive we can be in our own sinfulness? That's why we need each other. We can't even see our own sin, and we even rationalize our own sin many times. You know what you have to do? Ask the person who knows you best. You know, like somebody asked me, like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've got some areas I've got to work on, I guess. Oh, what about your spouse? Oh, yeah, let me, um, we can do that, right? The person we know best. It's the way it is. We're deceptive in our own sinfulness even. We're so self-deceived, we need grace to function kind of like a muscle relaxer. You ever taken those for when you've been ill or, or uh, you know, kind of uh, the pain of the surgery or whatever it was? We kind of need grace to function as a muscle relaxer so we can kind of let go of that death grip we have on our self-image just to let us, ah, uh, grace lets me let it go, to free it. We can let go of the fear that what we see with the surgical knife of God's Word that cuts to the heart, you know what comes right behind it? Grace comes behind as the anesthetic 
to heal us up. They go hand in hand. We've got to grasp with our minds the truth of God's acceptance of us in grace so that it works our way down deep into our hearts and begins to do that deep work of probing the deepest places of your heart and mind, those recesses that you don't really show to anybody else. And then when we do that, it softens us to God's love. Do you see why this is so important? To get into our minds uh, this, this idea of who we are in Christ and why it's a battlefield? Do you know this? There was a study done by the National Science Foundation. We talked about it in our men's group a couple weeks ago as we were reading through Gospel Fluency. And the study said that, uh, I don't know how they did it, but let's just even, ho- if he was even close to this number, they said 80, about 80% of most people's thoughts are negative. Think about that. 80%. And they said we have about 12 to 50,000 thoughts daily. Now, even if this is partially true, let's say it was 70%. Let's say it was 60. Let's say it was 50% of your thoughts are negative daily. I think we'd all agree that that's not a, a, a positive, uh, a very healthy ratio, is it? <laughs> of negative thinking. Regrets from the past. Guilt. Shame. Fear of failure, fear of finally forgiving someone, fear of being known. And of course, what we meditate on will shape us, won't it? Think of uh, Gollum from Lord of the Rings. He meditated, all he could meditate on was that selfish, greedy, godlike power he wanted from that ring. And what did it do to him? Shriveled him up. How many of us are shriveled up inside? Because you're flooded with just negative thoughts all day long and you never dwell on Jesus Christ or the gospel or the freedom he gives you. What thoughts are you captive to? I'm not just talking about the power of positive thinking here. I'm talking about gospel thinking here. Dwell on the fact that you're dead to sin, Paul says, and a new creature in Christ, wed to Christ Dwell on that, and you will see freedom come, and life come, and joy come, and growth come. But man, don't we love to just do this exercise, like at your dinner table one night with your family, or a conversation with your spouse, silently kind of tally up how many things are in a row are negative. That's your exercise this week. Somebody do that in your family or in your marriage or with a friend. Just kind of tally up how many things are just even generally kind of negative. You'll be shocked. You'll be shocked. So what does that look like? Let's look at it a bit more in our second, which is a much shorter point here. Let's look at the dethroning. Christians live lives then, if we're dead to sin, of dethroning the sin of their hearts. We come to these last three verses of this passage here. Verse 14 has got to be the standout of these last three verses for you. It's got to be the standout for us. Because it's the assurance of a stated fact here. It's an encouragement and an incentive to push forward in verses 12 through 13. I love how Paul bookends this with so much positive um, thoughts about Christ and our sanctification. Look at verse 14 with me. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under the law but under grace. Sin will not master you, he's saying. You're, you're dead to sin. You know what's great about this? This is not a command here. 
This is a promise to wrap up this sanctification passage. It's a promise. We live under, the, under grace, the era of grace and forgiveness post-resurrection. Now, if that's the case, verses 12 and 13 aren't as daunting, are they? If it's certain you are not under the slavery and mastering of sin, then verses 12 and 13 are as daunting. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign, there's a throne of your heart, in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let it reign. So what does that mean then? We begin each day as a fresh battle for the reigning place in our hearts. So here's our subpoint: We wake each day to battle sin. That's how we wake. That's how we roll out of bed or should move towards and, and pursue that. Sin is viewed here as a power at work within us. He's saying old desires remain. Look at chapter 7 later today in Romans to see if Paul struggled with this. Old desires remain even as we are a new creature. doesn't mean it's a vacillation between Jekyll and Hyde. It just means as a new creature, we still wrestle with sin. But through His Word, through His Spirit, through other believers, through prayer, through living out of our justification, through gospel saturation, through meditating on our union with Jesus, through conviction, encouragement, all these ways we battle. God joins us in the battle. But sin isn't just the absence of doing negative. It's also in the positive living as well, how we use our bodies as we commit our life to Christ. So we wake each day to battle sin, and our next sub-point to commit by committing your life to Christ, to live for Christ, to love Christ, to serve Christ. Look at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but, here's the positive, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So sin is not just sins of commission. If that was the case in the church, we'd look around and go, you know what? We're all doing pretty good. Sins of commission, things we do, acts of committing, think of committing crime, that, sins of commission, we think, you know, I'm doing pretty good. That's why we can't just be content or passive here in a first sanctification. Well, I haven't done much committing or wrong, but the standard here, Paul says, is not just neutrality of making sure you don't commit things. The standard he's saying here is also positively living for Jesus. Members for God and unto God. It's holiness in Christ. That's the, that's the, the standard, the goal. In Christ, it's Christ himself, actually, who is the perfect picture of fulfilling the law. So he's the standard of positive holiness, too. So it's not just commission. It's also a mission. Those things we leave out. Ways we should love and do. So it's not just the absence of sin, but the upside-down ethic of the kingdom. The Beatitudes, the first will be last, the last first. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who mourn. No greater love has man than this, than a man who lays down his life for his friends. Positively, too. Negatively, don't use your members to join sin, but positively, use them for God. Paul says this in chapter 12 of Romans. View your bodies as a living sacrifice for God. 
So we're free from the bondage of sin for something. We sang the word free. I love it. Great, great worship set today. It just flowed so great in what we're singing today. We sang the word free probably 20 times today. Free, we're, we're free from, but we're free for something. And actually, that's, that's the, actually the much more biblical idea of what freedom means, especially coming up to the fourth for us. It's not just negative freedom, freedom from constraints, freedom from things. It's freedom for, actually. That's the more biblical view, actually, of freedom. Freedom for. Positive freedom. Not just negative freedom. Positive. But we don't wait each morning to fight a hopeless fight. We know, as this verse says here, grace will prevail. Grace will prevail in your life. You're not under the law. Yes, to follow it, but not to save yourself. You're dead to sin. Verse 14 says, sin will not master you. Jesus will complete the work he started. How do we know? How do you know? The silly little cup, right? This thing, with the, it's the elements. It's the table. How do we know? His death and resurrection, that's how we know. And as we come to this table, it's baptism, it's a picture of death and burial and unity to, to Christ in his death, so too the other ordinance he gave us was this. This is how you know because of what this points to. This is how you know you're in Christ, with Christ, and that He is in and with and for you and will not give up on your sanctification. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's how you know. And So let's take a moment or two as we think about being dead to sin, as we think about dethroning sin, to know that is He going to leave you alone in sanctification? No, look what He did for you. He put everything on the line for you, His life included. Take a couple minutes as the worship band comes back up. Ponder this. Think about this. Pray about this. As you hold this little cup that's got this juice and bread in it to know that he who began this work will complete it. Let's take a moment in silent contemplation and prayer.